Romans is not one of them. Romans is aimed at right where you and I are at. It's aimed at where, where we live. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell you why that is. Because in the book of Romans, if you remember now, I told you this a couple of weeks in a row, that in the book of Romans, what we're getting into is the aspect of, of getting God's righteousness. That's what Paul is really trying to accomplish in this book. He shows how that the Gentiles, you and me, are caught up in our unrighteousness. The nation of Israel is caught up in their self-righteousness. And he's showing that the only way the Jew and the Gentile can get God's righteousness is to deal with the fact that who they really are and the problems they're really struggling with. And uh, it's, it's the same thing for you and for me. You're going to find out in Romans chapter 4, when we get a little bit farther down here, exactly how you and I, as a, as a, as a human being, get, or in some cases if you're saved, have gotten God's righteousness. And the only way you can get God's righteousness is to understand who you really are and deal with who you really are in your relationship with God. And that's why the book of Romans is such an absolutely telling book as far as dealing in your life and my life. And many times it gets right down where we live, sometimes a little too close, but uh, it's a great book. It's great. One of those books that you love or, or, and, and at the same time you hate. Nobody likes to have be told what's wrong with us. But many times that's the best thing for us. And the book of Romans doesn't spare anything, as you'll see, even today as we get a little bit farther on. Now, today I want to read in Romans chapter 2, and I want to pick it up in verse 17 through 25. And here's what it says. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approveth the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? How that makest thy boast, uh, thou, thou, thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily uh, 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 profiteth if it, if it keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Pray, Father, you'll take the passage today that we begin to break it down and look at it, that you help us to glean out of it those things that help us uh, look and understand uh, who we are. Lord, I know that Romans chapter 1 deals with the Gentiles in their unrighteousness, and, and Romans chapter 2 deals with the Jew in their self-righteousness. But, Lord, those are two things that even a child of God can bring into their life. We may be saved and on our way to heaven, Lord, and we may at one point in our life trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. But, Lord, we can allow the unrighteousness of this world to come in and ruin our relationship with Christ. We may be saved and on our way to heaven, and we may not do anything, Lord, that uh, brings the world in as far as all the filth and ungodliness. But we developed an attitude of self-righteousness that we think that we're better and that think that we uh, live above the standard that others must keep. And help us, Lord, to always look at ourselves and understand that this is what the book of Romans does so well. It takes our nose and puts it right face to face with who we really are. Many times we don't like that. 
but help us, Lord, to like it. Help us to be like Job. Help us to come to the place that when Job was in the height of his trial, in the height of his tribulation, when everybody on every side was castigating him and making it like it was his fault when it wasn't, when everybody was blaming God for all the terrible things that happened to his life and asked Job for a statement on where he was with God, Job simply said, you know what, boys? I don't care if he kills me. I'm still going to trust him. Help us, Father. Help us as the book of Proverbs says that we that love the honeycomb, the Word of God, even the bitter things become sweet. And we'll thank you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now it becomes obvious as you begin to read through the book of Romans that what follows here uh, and what's taking place here is Paul is writing not only to save Gentiles, but he's also writing to Jews who have been saved and become Christians and they're, they're struggling with some things. You don't have to read very far in the New Testament to find out that, and many times we forget this, many times we, we don't understand uh, how all these things work. But many times we, we forget the fact that, you know, during this period of time, there were some things that were happening here that, uh, that the nation of Israel uh, you know, struggled with. They really didn't understand totally and completely how everything was working with the church. And it brought up a controversy. You find in the book of Acts that they're struggling back and forth with some issues. The Jews didn't understand this new thing called the church. Well, they had been raised all of their lives in a concept where they did not understand, uh, you know, now the new aspect of the church. Many of them struggled with the Gentiles coming into the church. All of their lives they had been told that the Gentiles were bad. All of their lives they had been preached to and told that the Gentiles were unclean and they were to have no part of them. Suddenly, now that Christ has come and died on the cross, Gentiles are suddenly allowed into the church. And many of them struggled back and forth with this. Now, this is one of the reasons that Paul writes the book of Romans. The, Roman, the book of Romans takes the Gentiles who have been saved, and it takes the Jews that have been saved, and it puts them on the same wavelength as far as where they're at in their relationship and understanding about what God is doing. And once you understand that great concept, it becomes easier for you to kind of reconcile all of this. You want to remember that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a book that helps. It, it, it lasts about 30-some years, and it, it kind of is like a buffer to help everybody understand what God is now doing coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the book of Romans is written around Acts chapter 17, 18, or 19, right in the middle of all of this. So maybe that helps you kind of put it into perspective of, of what we're talking about here. I know for me that for me to really understand something, I have to visualize it. I have to see it. And many times what helped me with the Bible is getting the Bible to the place where I could see the concept in my mind before I tried to understand it. So maybe that helps you a little bit better understand the book of Romans where it fits. It fits into this period of time where the Jews and the Gentiles are kind of in flux. We're coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Everything has changed, and everybody's trying to grasp it and understand it, and sometimes they're having a tough time getting it, and so uh, you have Peter and Paul working with it however they, they need to, and they're just kind of bringing the thing around that everybody gets on the same page. Not everybody did. You'll find in the book of Galatians, for instance, that there's some people that just simply would not follow it. you also find that in the book of Acts. People who are bound and determined to stay to what they're going to believe and what they're going to do, no matter who says what. And you always have that. Now, it's obviously that Paul is dealing with some of these people groups 
as we come into this, uh, into this section here. And now today as we start this out, we're going to break this down like we have so far. Now we're going to see Paul do a very unchristian thing. You know, it, it, it always is amusing to me uh, how, how the day and age that we live in. And this is a great lesson. This is a great lesson. Because what Paul does now in this section that we're going to look at is it reverts to something that, that we as New Testament Christians living today, we just can't get to. We live in a day and age that Christianity is all touchy-feely. You know, everything's got to be warm. You've got to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. Everybody, everything's got to be, everything's got to be, everything's got to be positive. Everything has got to be something. There can be no negative in it, you know. Everything has to be uplifting and, edi- and all that. Well, you know, the word edifying uh, is a word that doesn't always mean uplifting. Edifying can mean rebuke. It can mean that you, you get edified by showing, being shown what's wrong with you. And now we see Paul reverting to something, and I think this is one of the, these are the great places in the Bible to me. I call these places the day that they lose their, the day they lose their, their Christianity, the day they lose their love for people, because Paul now reverts to sarcasm. And uh, he becomes very sarcastic in this chapter. And very frankly, most Christians, uh, they don't understand that sarcasm and using it uh, in a Christian way is, is an art like preaching. And, uh, you know, you, they, you don't hear it anymore. And because of the fact that uh, people are so touchy today that uh, you just can't, uh, you've got to sometimes be very careful with what you say because people are so, uh, they just don't have a good handle on, on the Word of God. You know, uh, there's a place in your Bible in Matthew chapter 23 where I call it, and I got it in there, the day Jesus got out of fellowship. You know, when you hear Jesus today, he's the sweet little man from Galilee, the little prophet, you know, and he's always going around and doing good. And how many times have I heard somebody say, well, Jesus would, uh, well, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus would love this and Jesus would love that. And Jesus loves all the people. <clears throat> and Jesus, uh, you know, he never says a mean word to anybody and all that stuff. You ought to look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is a place where God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, reverts to the art of sarcasm. And he takes the scribes and the Pharisees to task, and he says some things into there that if uh, the average pastor in the pulpit would say to the congregation today, they would mark him as somebody that has no grace, somebody that has no love for people, somebody that has no care for people. And, of course, there's a time and a place. There's a time and a place in dealing with people where you've got to revert and do some radical things to try to get people to think where they're at. I call it in Matthew chapter 23, the eight woes. The eight woes that he pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees. And boy, he calls them some things there that, that uh, like I said, if the average pastor would get up. You know what he said one time? He said one time, and Luke, somebody says, now, somebody went, come up and said, what do you think about the leaders of Israel? You know what his remark was? He said this, I think if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in the ditch. He's sitting down eating one time. One of the Pharisees looked over and he says, well, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands for ye." Jesus looked out and he said, you didn't wash your heart. Would you pass the salt, please? <laughs> Whoop. Did you ever go back to 1 Kings chapter 18 and see the day Elijah got out of fellowship with God and lost the sweet spirit of Christ? He's up against the prophets of Baal. He's up against the prophets of Baal. And really in that particular passage, it's, it's God against the Baal and, and the sun God. And it's one prophet of God versus 400 prophets of Baal. And then here's the deal. Elijah just says, let's find out who's the real God here. Let's find out who is the real God. And I'll tell you what. You build an altar, put a sacrifice on it, you do all the things, and I'll build one. 
And uh, let's just solve this thing. Whoever's God brings down fire and communes a sacrifice, that'll be the true God. So he says, you go first. And so the prophets of Baal are over there. They build them an altar. They get them a sacrifice. You know, they put it on there. And the Bible tells you the story. They're running around in a circle. They're doing all the things that they're, they think they should do. And the and Bible, when it didn't come down, then they got, they got really into it. Bible says they started to cut themselves. They started to uh, 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 cut themselves and go through all this ritual for fire to come down. Now, Elijah, the man of God, the sweet prince to Israel, Elijah, with a sweet spirit of Christ. You know what he does? He stands over here and makes fun of them. What an unchristian thing to do. He's standing over here and saying, now working hard at it. He's standing over there and saying, hey boys, what's the matter? Can't get it to happen? Where's your God at today? Oh, I know. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's on a far journey. And he just mocks them and makes fun of them all the way through the thing. And then he has the insult, the insult. Once they can't get their fire jump started, you know what he does? He says, now boys, watch this. He walks over to his sacrifice and he gets a bunch of water. Because the sacrifice is going to burn. And he pours water on it. Then he pours water on it again. Then he pours water on it a third time. Now, he's not only, he's not only going to do what they couldn't do, he's going to do it in an impossible way because he just put 300 gallons of water on top of the sacrifice, which has to get on fire. They're over there with their big lighters trying to get the thing going and, and they can't get anything going. He steps out of the way and the Bible says fire comes down out of heaven and does not only just consume the sacrifice, it consumes the, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones, and the Bible says it consumes the very ground. You know why? When God consumes something, it's complete. But oh, the unchristian way Elijah dealt with those poor prophets. Oh, the unchristian way that Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and in Luke chapter 6 now, I don't have time this morning to tell you. Bible says in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Then in the next verse it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. In other words, there's a time for sarcasm and there's a time not to be sarcastic. Now, I don't have time this morning to win you to the art of sarcasm. But it's an art. And it's part of understanding when to and when not to. And the Bible makes it very clear, if you would want to study it at some point, that you've got to start by saying, looking at who he's sarcastic with. Now, you don't want to go out of here and just say, well, Bob said this today, so I'm going to go out and give everybody a smart aleck answer. That's not what it works. Some of you do that anyhow. But that's not how it works. There has to be an understanding of that sarcasm and dealing with people is just as important as any aspect. But what is more important is that the Holy Spirit of God leads you to do it. You know that there's some times when you, you realize that in dealing with people, I know, and I know I'm, I'm outside your box right now. I see it on your faces. Most of you can't get where I'm going. I understand that. You're part of this nice legacy and world Christianity that just thinks, you know, God would never do anything like that. And probably if we really got into it, we'd go down to Matthew and those passages, you probably already cut them out of your Bible because you couldn't deal with it. But I want to tell you something. You realize there are some people in this world that God never intends you for the wind of Christ? You realize there are some people that God's going to bring upon your path that they never, God never intended for them to get saved. God never intended for them to get right. They have already seared their conscience. They already have made their choice. And all God wants you to do is just burn them. 
Now, I know you don't, some of you, maybe most of you can't get that, but I'm going to tell you something. If you don't know that, you don't know very much about people. I'll give you something else. If you don't know that, I guarantee you, I bet you haven't won anybody to Christ or many people to Christ in your life. Because you couldn't deal with people on a regular basis and not see that and come into contact with that. There are some people that, bottom line is, they're so caught up in who they are, they're so caught up in what they are, that the only way you can get to them is to show them how ridiculously stupid it is to believe what they believe. In other words, sometimes, as an old preacher told me one time, he said, sometimes you got to get them so mad that they'll stop and think. Now, most of you don't understand that. Let me ask you a question. I'll put it in a... Now, if you were in a car wreck, you and your husband, God forbid, if you and your husband or you or so your friend was in a bad car wreck and you got thrown out of the car and the car's on fire and that car and, 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 and your friend is pinned under that car and uh, there's only one way that... And the car's burning and he's going to burn to death. And there's only one way you can't get it. You, nobody's there. You've tried to move the car. you got your big log, tried to pry it. you got the jack out of the back. You did everything but call for an airlift. You can't move the car. His leg is pinned under that car. And that car is burning. And he's going to die. The only alternative you have is to get out a hacksaw or a knife and sever his leg. In other words, you're going to cut off the leg to save his life. Now, we don't like to think about that. We like to think, well, we'll just pull him out. We'll just, we'll, just, we'll just push the car over or we'll get some help. We don't have to go. Hey, there are times in life when you don't have that option. You have one option. That is to take off his arm, take off his leg, take off this, take off that, and save him and lose the leg. Now, that is a radical way to do it. Would you like to do that? Do you go to bed at night saying, I hope I get that opportunity tomorrow? Nobody likes to think about that. It would be one of the hardest things you have to do. But sometimes, here comes the point, to get people to live, you have to do some real radical things. I don't know what to tell you. I wish every time, every person you dealt with, that it was just as easy as pulling them out of the car, pulling them out of the fire. doesn't work that way in real life. Paul understands that. Jesus understood that. Elijah obviously understood that. Most of God's people today have no clue. You know what? The people can go so far and bury themselves so far and get so far out of touch with God or some other religion or some false religion and get hooked up in their self-righteousness and their unrighteousness and the only way you can deal with them is to get them to see how stupid they really are for believing what they believe. And I don't know how else to say it. You've got to get them so mad that they think. One time a woman years ago, this has been a long time ago, she had a boy that was a Jehovah Witness. And uh, she came to me and she said, uh, would you come and, and, and talk to my boy? He's in a Jehovah Witness. He's been in it for four or five years. And he really, 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 he said, would you come and talk with him? And I, she says, you've had a lot of success dealing with other people in religion. Would you come and talk to him? And I said, well, if he would talk to me, I'm not going to go kick the door down and say, hey, sit down. If he would want to talk to me, I'll be glad. Well, what Jehovah Witness doesn't want to talk to somebody? You ever meet a Jehovah Witness that wasn't willing to talk with you about being a Jehovah Witness? I never have. Because he thought I was going to be just like most Baptists. Well, that was a day in his life he got a revelation from somebody. First thing that got him all worked up was when they walked in there, I had a big box of his books, all written by Watchtower. Must have had 40 or 50 in a big cardboard box. And I said, hey, I'm Bob. Well, I'm so-and-so. Well, come on in. And we sat down, and we put those over there. And he says, what's those for? 
He thought I was going to give them to him, see? I thought, well, your mother said we were going to talk about Jehovah's Witness. I thought maybe you'd want to go through some of these, and we could start with these, or we could start someplace else. You know what I got him on? He got so mad, he threw me out of his house. Literally, threw the books out on the porch, broke my cardboard box. <laughs> threw me out of his house. We were there for two and a half hours. And what happened was, is he got so angry at me. He got so mad at me. He got absolutely so livid at me that he literally threw me out of his house, cussed me out, lost Jehovah, and threw me out. And then threw my books out. You know what I said to him? I got him on one point. And for one point, he wanted to go everywhere around the world like they all do. He wanted to talk about hell. He wanted to talk about tribulation. He wanted to talk about this. He wanted to talk about that. I want to talk about one thing. Where were you at you believe at before 1888 with Russell and Rutherford? Bible says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain and build it. You have no history as a Jehovah Witness before 1800. Show me one job. I said, I'll give you a million dollars cash. Got my checkbook in the car. I'll give you a million dollars cash. You give me one Jehovah Witness in 1500. 1600. 1700. 1200. 1000. 800. He snidely looked back. He snidely looked back and said, you don't even have a million dollars. I said, I could get it together for you. You could find the person. Want a little good advice in life? Somebody taught me, don't ever fight with an old man. Tell, no, no, this is good advice. Don't ever fight with an old man. You know why? Because an old man can't fight. He'll just kill you. That's great advice. Somebody go up and say, oh, I'm going to whip this old man. The old man says, I can't fight you. So I'll just kill you. Bang! He don't care. One point. One point. We never moved off that point for two and a half hours. At the end of that time, and I ridiculed it. I said, you mean to tell me that you're going to believe something that you can't go back for 1800? Name me one joke. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll get, let's play a game. I'll give you ten guys who believe what I believe for every one you give me. Oh, I'll tell you what. Let's make it better. Let's do 50. I was pulling the Elijah on him. I said, where's your Jehovah at in, 18, in, 18, in 1700? You're going to tell me, you're going to tell me that from 1800 to 1990, whatever it was, 80, whatever it was, I said, that's when the world had the truth. Everybody before that point never had the truth. I said, do you know in a world population of 5.6 billion people at that time, in a world population that's run for 6,000 years, do you realize that that is one millionth of one percent of the world's population that only gets eternal life? I said, how did somebody in, in Jesus' time or after Jesus' time, how did somebody in the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century get what you believe? You say that Jesus believed it. You say the apostles believed it. But then you can't find anybody in history to believe it. Oh, he, he was, he was livid. Foam was coming out of his mouth. <laughs> Threw me out of his house. You know what? Two years later, I got a phone call from him. And he says, Bob, this is so-and-so. And I remember immediately, I said, oh, boy, round two coming up. <laughs> he, he said, you know what? I want to apologize to you. He said, and he began to cry. He says, I says, I want you to know I got saved. And he said, I want you to know that that day you left, I was so mad. I was so angry. I hated you. If I had a gun, I would have killed you. A ball bat, I would have hit you over the home plate. He said, I was absolutely livid. And I went back to my kingdom hall. And they couldn't answer my question. He said, I quit my job, went to New York, and went to work for Watchtower. They couldn't answer my question. Nobody could answer the question. And God took that thing like a knife in my heart. One day I went someplace and somebody witnessed to me and I just gave it all up and trusted Christ as my Savior. 
But you see, I had to cut his leg off to get him out of the car. Can you understand that? That's what Paul's doing here. It's what Jesus does. And sometimes when you understand how to use it and how to deal with it, you've got to understand. And, and the key is, is knowing in the Bible when it's to be done. And that's a great study in itself. We don't have time for that today. Now I look at verse 17 and 18. Here comes the sarcasm. I love it. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law. Yes, they do. And makest thy boast of God. Yes, they do. And knowest his will and approveth of things that are excellent. Yes, they do. Being instructed out of the law. Yes, they are. You know what he's saying? Making fun of them. Here's what he's saying. You're Jews and you have the law. You brag and you boast about you're the one true God. You brag about the fact that you know his will, that all things got to come through Israel. You brag and hold up the fact and you approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. That means they understand that, that all the blessings of the earth got to come through them. He says, you, 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 you have the law. You boast about your one God. You know his will. You approve the things that are excellent. Now he sets them up. Of course, all these things are true as far as the Bible's concerned of what God wants them to be. But the problem is, it's not what they're doing. They've elevated themselves in their self-righteousness. They're now way above reaching anybody. They don't care about reaching anybody. They care about maintaining their spirituality that the world looks at them and they hold out the great sign that they are God's chosen people. And he's setting them up, except Israel has not doing what God wants them to do. You know what he's trying to get them to do? He's trying to get them to do what I talked to you last week about doing. He's trying to get them to see who they really are. Because before you can ever get God's righteousness, before God's ever going to use you, you're, I'm not saying you've got to fix everything in your life just like that. I'm not saying that because we know that that doesn't always work. When I work with people, and many of you disciple people, you know as well as I do that there's a process in getting a person to really have that relationship with God. But let me tell you something. Understanding who you are has to be immediate before that happens. You have to be honest with yourself. He's trying to get Israel to be honest. And sometimes in some people, not any of you, but sometimes with some people, you have to really come after them and get them to think of who they are. Now, I know that, and I mean this, you know, sometimes I say things with tongue-in-cheek when I say, well, I know that's none of you, and yet I'm thinking there's somebody out there. Honestly, I don't see anybody, know anybody in my world, in our church, that's like that. I really don't. I really don't. And I mean that, so I don't want to be tongue-in-cheek about it, but, but I'm dealing with what Paul's telling them, and I'm dealing with people and talking about people that you're going to deal with at some point if you stay in the ministry and continue to grow. And it's just that simple. And he says, verse 19, And are confident that thou thyself are a guide to the blind. Now there's where he hitchhikes off of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 39. When Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, who were leading Israel. And somebody said, what do you think about this? He says, you know what I think? I think if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in the ditch. That's what he's making a reference to here. He's hitchhiking off of something that Jesus said. A light to them that are in darkness. Yeah, right. They should be. They should be. They're supposed to be. He says, an instructor of the foolish. You know that Bible's about a wise man and a foolish man? Israel is supposed to be the wise man. The unsaved Jews are supposed to be the foolish men, and it's the job of the wise men to reach out and get the foolish men. You know what's true in our lives? This world is made up of two kinds of people, wise and foolish. 
Wise are saved for the most part. Foolish are unsaved. Oh, you have some that are saved and still fools. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, just getting saved doesn't cancel out the fool across your forehead. You have to apply what the Word of God says. But that's our job. That's Israel's job. He says a teacher of babies. You know what that's like? That's the next generation. We all know when we come through our study uh, on the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, why he had to put a Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law, is because the nation of Israel did not give their children the heritage what God had done in their lives. So God had to do it a second time. And that's exactly what he's saying. You ought to be a teacher of babes. You ought to take the young generation, prepare them to be the leaders when you guys die off. That's true of churches. That's true of Christians. That's true of your kids. You ought to be preparing the babies in your family right now to grow up strong and straight before the Lord and do what's honorable and do what's right before God. No question about it. While we had the parenting seminar a while back where we went through that thing, while we had the marriage enrichment where we went through and how to put that together before you even got to the children. A teacher of babes, the next generation. It's true of this church. We always have Christians coming in and we have Christians that move up the ladder. And as you grow spiritually, let me tell you something. The next, I'm not going to be the pastor forever. I'm not going to live forever. If Jesus doesn't come, somebody's got to take this work. Somebody's got to take over the leadership. Somebody's got to be the ones that carry on the legacy of what this work started. But I'll tell you what, what you see through his sarcasm here and what he's trying to get across is the great principle. Now, you see it. Romans is where we live. Romans makes us confront who we really are. And when the Holy Spirit of God and God sees us playing the games, he just plays the game better than we do. That's all. You want to you wanna be sarcastic in your life toward him? He'll be sarcastic back to you. It's a game. But it's a game that God always plays better than we do. We think we get ahead of God. We think that we can, we can get the corner on God. We actually think that we can do something wrong, get away with it, and beat God in the end. What a fool we are. I'll tell you what. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. What a sore a man soweth, that's what he's going to reap. It may take two years, five years, ten years, twelve years, but you're going to reap it sooner or later, and it's going to come back. It's going to come back. He says in verse 20, the instruction and teachers have a form of the knowledge of and truth. They have a form of the knowledge and truth in the law. A form of it. Not the real thing, just a form. We saw this over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. When Timothy was talking about the false teachers in the New Testament church, he said they've got a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He's saying to the Jews, Oh, you got all the, you got all the pomp and circumstance. You got all the laws. You got all this. You got all that. You got, you got the outside structure. There's just nothing real on the inside. You know, there's a lot of God's people that way. And you meet them all the time. Deal with them all the time. My whole life has been built around dealing with good people and people who are empty shells. We have the little expression, you know, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Somebody else says, well, his elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. Somebody else says, well, you know what, He's not the, they're not the, they're not the uh, you know, uh, sh- uh, sharpest light bulb in the box. You know, and, that, and that's all cliches that we, but the bottom line is this. Christianity, God's people come in two shapes and sizes, only two. They're either well furnished or on the way to getting themselves furnished, or they're empty on the inside. And that's the nation of Israel. And that's what he's dealing with. 
This whole thing forms around Israel having a form of the knowledge of truth without really having it. And it translates over to the church having a form of godliness, God's people having a form of godliness, but not really having it. No power in their lives. You know, the Jews today, the Jews today from the liberal reformed, and they are the real radical liberal bunch, <coughs> right up to the... Uh, right up to the, uh, uh, the ultra-conservative Orthodox. And they're the ones that still wear their beards and little pigtails and wear little black hats and cut their hair and cut their beard the way <coughs> they're supposed to. Uh, they only give him lip service uh, when it comes to God and His law. One of the greatest verses they ever found in the Bible that not only details out... If you want, if you want the nation of Israel in one verse, if you want a one definitive verse... That, that details out the nation of Israel the way they are today or where they have been since their demise. It's Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3. The problem with it is it's also a great verse for where we're at today because it's a, it's a telling verse, powerful verse, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible as far as I'm concerned. He says this in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 3. I'm going to put it in the context of Israel. You put it in the context of you and me. Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. I don't know of any greater verse that tells you and me from God's authority where the nation of Israel is at today. For a long season, they've been out with the true God, no teaching priest, nothing that brings them to the reality that's just a form. Most common Jews have never even read the Scriptures. Now, you know... I hear people all the time <clears throat> talk about, well, I work with a person who's Jewish. Let me tell you something. 99.99999% of the Jews that you work with are not Jews in any way stretch of the imagination. They, went out, they might as well went out and got them a, 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 a T-shirt that said, you know, I'm an aircraft mechanic or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fighter pilot. Uh, they are no more a Jew than they are a fighter pilot or an aircraft mechanic. They just wear the badge that says they are. And then you got the Orthodox Jews. Uh, that, uh, that, are, that try to be as close to it as they can. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. <clears throat> All the scriptures that are read in the synagogues are nothing more but bits and pieces carefully chosen to sidestep the real Israel that Israel has to face. That's all they are. Their sermons have been sanitized and sterilized of all the prophecies concerning Christ and His coming. Don't you know that there's over, <clears throat> there's over 500 prophecies in the Old Testament 500 prophecies that every time a Jew reads his Bible in the Old Testament, he's got to get around some way. You know, in the Hebrew Old Testament, their Bible is not set up like yours. Your last book in your Bible in the Old Testament is Malachi. The last book in a, in a Hebrew Old Testament that a Jew reads is Second Chronicles. They're not the same order. You know the last thing God tells that Jew in Second Chronicles? The last thing he tells that Jew in Second Chronicles, every time a rabbi reads it, every time a Jew reads it, every time somebody who claims to be Jewish reads their Bible through and stops at Second Chronicles chapter 36, you know the last thing he reads? The last thing he reads is he's told to go back to the land. Back to the land. Rabbis don't read and study the Scriptures. They don't study the Law and the Prophets. They study the comments of the comments of the comments that somebody has written on the Scriptures of what he thinks it means. Well, that's four authorities from the real authority. Now, I like reading books because I think you can read a lot of books and learn a lot of things about God, the Bible, history. But I tell you what, I have a rule in my mind that I never violate. And that is I never get past one authority past the authority. 
I don't get caught up in nine or ten guys, what they all believe about it. I judge everything I read through the Word of God that God has given because that's the absolute standard. It's easy to get caught up reading books. You know, most of God's people want to read books. They just don't want to read the Bible. You know what? Reading books won't solve your problem. It's reading the Bible that will solve your problem. Once you get the Bible down, then you read the books to help you with what you don't understand in the Bible. It's not vice versa. That's where it's at. But we don't like to read the Bible. We know from last week in the book of James, because reading the Bible makes us look at who we really are. I told people all the time, you start reading the Bible, the Bible is the only book in the world. Only book in the world. This is why we don't like it. The Bible is the only book in the world when you open that book and you start reading it, it immediately starts reading you. And we don't like it. Or you can get Rick Warren's book on the, on, and his great books, or you can get Pete Ruckman's books, or you can get Clarence Larkin's books, and you can read them and read them, and you can read them, and you can read them, and oh, what a great time. <clears throat> and you can have fun with those books. When you open up that book, it's the only book on planet Earth. When you begin to read it, it begins to read you. We don't like that. <clears throat> but that's Romans. That's Romans. That's Romans. And of course, that's the problem of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> You see, the real issue with them is this. The Jews, having rejected Christ at the first coming of Christ, they also had to reject His Word. But they stayed in business. They stayed in business. <clears throat> you know, there's a telling thing in the Gospels. When Jesus is crucified on the cross. Now, let me show you the, the depth that these people will go as, as the same depth that you and I will go, the pull-off of facade. Well, you're going to find that when Jesus is crucified on the cross, Bible says that from the sixth to the ninth hour, the sun didn't shine. On the cross, the Lord Jesus cries out, uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From the sixth to the ninth hour, the Bible says that when he dies, the earth rents and great earthquakes and, and all these things take place. You know what else it says that happens? It says that the veil over the temple, the veil over the temple got ripped right down the middle. Now, I don't know if you know the significance of that or not, but in the Old Testament, when a priest went into the tabernacle to make the sacrifice he could not go into the holy of holies only one man the high priest on a special day then he had to wear special garments special circumstances could go into the holy of holies because that's where the presence of god was if anybody ever even looked on that altar god killed him just like that that's why they had this gigantic veil some some jewish historians say this veil was was 14 inches thick no light would prevail because inside there was the light of God. Oh, you all saw, you all saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know how it works. And the Bible says that when Christ died on the cross, and He says, it is finished. And the Bible says He gave up the ghost. And the heavens go black and the earthquakes and the lightning fall. The Bible says that that veil gets cut from right down the middle. And now you can look on the Holy of Holies. You can see there. You can walk in. You can look at it. And nobody dies. Now, don't you know that told a Jew something? When the guy walks in there for the first time after the crucifixion, he's so righteous about what he did. And he, he looks in there and he says, oh, oh, my God, I just saw. He runs out and somebody says, what's the matter? I just saw the Holy of Holies. I didn't saw the Holy of Holies. And somebody says, you didn't see the Holy of Holies. You saw the Holy of Holies, you'd be dead. I'm telling you, it's, it's ripped. I saw it. He says, well, let's go. And they peek back in, sneak around the side, expecting God to kill them at any moment, pull it back, step in, there's the Holy of Holies. There's the made-up ark that they've had now for a long time. Nobody died. 
Nobody died. They looked at each other. One said, yeah, what are we going to do? The guy said, I don't know, but we better think of something because if we don't, we're out of a job. If men now know that the Holy of Holies is no good, maybe this man Jesus was the replacement for, maybe he was the Holy of Holies. We got to do something. You know what they did? They sewed that veil back up. A hundred years later, 70 A.D., when Titus came down and destroyed Jerusalem, they were still going behind that veil, playing the game, playing the game that God was still in objects made with hands. That's what they do. That's what we do. So they had to invent a whole system to make you and me think that, that they're okay. They had to come up with every alibi and excuse, blaming it on the Gentiles, blaming it on this, blaming it on everybody else so they could, they could say to themselves, I'm okay. They had a form of the knowledge. They had a form of godliness, but no power in their life. The Holy of Holies now, you could give donkey rides on it on Sunday afternoon. and Nobody would die. Power's gone. But they had to pretend. So they developed a whole, invented a whole system to make you and me and the world think that the Jews still have some power with God to alibi their rejection of the Messiah. So what do they do? They reinterpret the passages of the Old Testament today that deal with Christ as the Messiah and the standard teaching comes out when they read, well, you would read Isaiah 53, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, Psalm 22, Job chapter 30. They would tell you, they reinterpret those and tell you, that's not a Messiah. That is our nation Israel struggling through history to bring the light to the Gentiles. That's what they've done. They've done everything they could to get out from under the conviction and the truth of who they really are. Just like we do. Just like we do. God's people in the New Testament the same way. You know what? The Jews changed the prophecies to get rid of the Christ. God's people changed the book to get rid of the convictions and the teachings of the Word of God. It's the same system. Same system. Same system. Now here it comes. Now from this point on... I want to save up going up. I'm with you. I don't like this either. But here it comes. Here it comes. Boy, this is where it gets sarcastic. You ain't seen sarcasm yet. This is sarcasm with a big S. Verse 21. Great concept. Now he's come down and laid the Jews out. He's been sarcastic toward them. And now he's, 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 he's admonished them. Oh, you're this. You got the one true God. You got this. You got that. You got the law. You got this. Now you got the that. And then this is where he nails them. And unfortunately, nails us at the same time. Shut up, Phil. <laughs> Keep your amen to yourself. I hope that was Phil. <clears throat> All right. Verse 21. Thou therefore which teacheth another, <laughs> teachest yourself. <laughs> oh, God, I hate that. Oh. Hey, Jews, you teach everybody else. Do you teach yourself what you teach others? You know, last year I talked about in time, wanting to meet the real need. And the real need in our society, you know, is people with all kinds of issues and problems. And I talked about how I like to take three groups of people, you know, and, and, and teach you how to do the three levels of counseling when you get into people's worlds, that we can have a place where we could really 
and you know take people and really help work them through the things and you know and I thought maybe we would be ready by Christmas when we're not we've got a option on the fire now for the institute people we'll see what they do with that but but you know let me just someday you may find yourself in dealing with people I know some of you do it in a limited view now when you disciple somebody and you know as well as I do that anybody who ever started discipling didn't stay discipleship you get into every other issue you know and that's good that's what it's all about but let me tell you something let me tell you lesson number one of what he says in verse 21 and you better get this because if you're ever going to be good with people if you're ever going to be effective with people and this hits us right where we live. I, I, don't, I don't appreciate this any more than some of you do are going to appreciate it. But you know what? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? <clears throat> Lesson number one in dealing with people is this. <clears throat> you cannot effectively work with people in areas of their lives that you don't have victory in yourself. You cannot effectively <clears throat> work in somebody's life with their issues that you haven't got the victory of it over and yourself. Because what you wind up doing is teaching somebody else what they should do in any given situation, but you simply can't do it yourself. That's the problem. That's the problem. I, I don't like it any more than you do. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Dealing with people and counseling with people, if you ever get to that point, I'm going to tell you, it's not usually murder. It's not usually incest. It's not usually rape. It's not usually child molesting. It's not usually drug addiction. It's not usually some gigantic sparkly thing out there that is beyond the grasp of mankind's intelligence. You know what it is? It's basic relationships with people. It's basic marital issues. It's basic issues on somebody that's been divorced. It's basic issues in in people with guilt, people that have been abused by other religions or churches or who have just made a mess out of their life. Sometimes it's people who cannot forgive. They carry guilt around. Sometimes it's people that have been thrown out of the bus by other churches and they, 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 they just walk around in life like they're in shell shock. Those are the ones that, that you and I, uh, that's, that is what we have to deal with. Those are the issues. It isn't a big deal. Jesus himself said, it's, it's the foxes spoiled of vine. It's not the big things in this life that mess us up. It's the little things in life. Oh, this is tough, kids. This is tough. Last week we were into James chapter 1. I showed you how in James chapter 1 it said we had to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And we talked about that. Then I showed you how in 1 verse 25 he chained it. <coughs> doers of the word in 122, doers of the work in 125. You can't do the work until you can do the word. And I don't mean know it. I mean understand how to apply it. 90% of the counseling ministry in dealing with people is built around two verses. You got 10% that got all kinds of extenuating situations, but I'm going to tell you right now, 90% of the ministry of dealing with people is simply built around two verses. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And you know what the second is? Romans 15, 1. Ye that are strong off the bear the infirmities of the weak. That's the ministry. I tell Jamie all the time, we have our little conversations. 
your life and my life as your life and my life as leaders in this church and ministry. And my job as pastor, your job as a Christian, once you figure it all out, you know where you are? You're just a cobblestone street for people to walk on to get to Jesus. And sometimes they wear big, heavy shoes. That's your job. That's my job. We laugh about it, but that's the truth. That's our job. My job is a cobblestone road on which men trample on to help them get to Jesus. That's your job. That's my job. That was Israel's job. They were the light to the Gentiles. They're the ones that God wanted to bring out the blessing through and bring the light of the glorious God through the Gentiles through them. But they didn't do it. They got prideful. They got self-righteous. They got unrighteous. They got caught up in, in who they thought they were instead of who they really were. They became hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. Therefore, they never did the, become a doer of the work. You can't work with people in areas that you and I do not have victory in yourself. It becomes a joke. It becomes a sham. It becomes the unreality of the ministry. It becomes just another game that we play. And then he says this. Oh, I love this. It only gets worse from here. Verse 21 and 22. Thou teachest a man should not steal. Dost thou steal? That's a great question. You know, let me tell you something. The scribes and the Pharisees did not die out at the end of the first century. The scribes and the Pharisees are around today, not only with the Jews, but uh, the most dishonest group during this time that he's writing this is the nation of Israel. They are dishonest and have robbed God of just about everything. They're in an absolute apostate state. They have sold out the Old Testament. They have sold out the priesthood. They've added two now political structures, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which you don't even find anywhere in the Bible. And it's all about what they can get, not what they can give. And how unfortunate that the New Testament church has become the same way. How unfortunate today that churches exist not for what they can do for you, but what you can do for them. How unfortunate it is today that men stand in the pulpit and they want everything from you, but they will give you nothing back. They demand you to be there on Sunday. They demand you to be there Sunday night, Wednesday night, and everything they've got. They demand you to do this and to do that. But if you've got an issue in your life and your family and your marriage, they will subcontract you out to somebody else because that's not what they do. Well, what do you do? They're just like the Jews. They're just like the Jews. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't die out in the first century. They moved right into the church age. And here again, you work with people. You teach discipleship. And sometimes you deal with people about their honesty or their integrity. Or, I mean, the bottom line is, you say thou shalt not steal. Do you steal? If you're in business this morning, are you honest in your business? Do you, are you 100% legit in what you do? <clears throat> if I would ask somebody that, you, that hire you, and this is why I tell people all the time, you know what, don't use people in the church to, to, for, for doing anything. But two weeks goes by and somebody doesn't have a problem with somebody. I'm telling you, you know what I say to them? Hey, you know what, you need to listen a little bit better. You think the devil won't get into details of that? I mean, uh, I, I'm just telling you. Because you're going to find that not everybody is honest in everything that they do. 
Their integrity is not up to your standard. And let's face it. The moment you, you do something or you hire somebody in this church that has some kind of business, you expect, you don't going to tell me you expect them to give you a better deal than to do somebody else. That's your first mistake. You're not expecting to charge you more. I would. I mean, I wouldn't expect them. I mean, I would charge you more. If I ran a brick plant and you bought bricks for me, or I ran a, a, a shoe store and you bought shoes for me, and you come in and you say, Hey, Bob, I'm, I'm in your church. I need a pair of shoes. How much are these? And I say, Well, for non-church members, they're $40. For church members, they're 110 <laughs> Let me tell you something. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. Dost thou steal? Hey, you work for your boss. He pays you a salary. You give him eight hours of work for eight hours of pay? Do you? Do you? Or do you spend half your day talking to somebody about the Bible? They're not paying you to talk about the Bible. They're paying you to do eight hours work. The Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. Thou, thou teachest the man should not steal. Dost thou steal? See? Honesty, integrity. Do you steal from God? Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says, How, Where shall a man rob God? Tithes and offerings. And you know me, I don't care whether you give a dime or don't. Hey, if this church depends on anybody out here, you giving, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Guy told me one time, he says, You know what? I learned a lesson a long time ago. There's not one family, not one person, not anybody in any church that that church has to hinge on if you lose that person, that your whole church. I've seen pastors coddle families, coddle this, do that. Oh, you can't let them leave. You can't let them leave. Hey, let me tell you something. If you don't like it here and you want to leave, you can go wherever you want to go. You find somebody to teach you better, love you better, you need to go wherever you got to go to do that. I understand that because I'll never fall into the trap, nor should you ever fall into the trap, if you think this whole church rests on one family or one person or one individual. You know what? It's, you're all, we're all one body. We're all one body. Everybody pulls together as a body. But God says, will a man rob God? Yes, he does. The Jews did. And they do today. But you know what? That's just the way it is. And how do you do that? How do you, after all, I mean, I just don't know. I, I'd like to sit down sometime with somebody. And, and I'm not, I don't know, I don't think we have anybody even in here in this crowd. I mean, I don't. I, we, with all God does for us, I, I, everybody must be doing what they got to do. I don't know. I don't know. Don't want to know. I'm on the impression that everybody, but you know what? Romans is where we live. Where we live. Where I live. Where I live. Robbing a God. Robbing your boss. Robbing each other. That's what it's all about. And, of course, that's what he says to the Jew. Thou teachest the man should not steal. Dost thou steal? Oh, I love the next one. This one's great. Thou sayest to a man, uh, thou, sayest to a man thou shalt not commit adultery. Dost thou commit adultery? I, I got a great illustration of this. You know, in Bible Christianity, we have a group of uh, people, and I believe they're saved. But they're people like they had back in Paul's time. We call them legalists today. Now, legalism in the Bible is simply that saved New Testament people take other saved New Testament people and they put a set of laws 
and rules you got to follow. I must say, most of you today, if not all of you today, would fail the first rule going to a legalistic church. You women have slacks on. I heard a man, my wife witnessed to this, <clears throat> preach in a crowd of probably what, 3,000 people? And he got up there and he was a legalist to the nth extreme. And he got up in front of 3,000 people, half of them were women. Good, nice, nice church, good, solid people. And he got up there and called every woman in that church that had slacks on a dirty-legged whore. Yes! Am I telling the truth, honey? Because she had slacks on. <clears throat> I don't think she did. Now, first of all of this, if that was my wife and I was in that thing, me and him be having a talk afterwards. Now, he was crippled, so we'd have to give him some kind of help here. Can I tell you this story? Can I ask your permission before I tell it? Because I don't want to offend anybody, but I got to tell you this story. I got to tell him this story. Mel, you leaned over to Mel. Can I tell this story? Think it's all right? Oh, I have? Okay. Now, this guy, okay, I'm going to. So don't get mad at me. I want to see a hand. How many want to hear the story? Well, that's only half of you. Okay. <clears throat> Here's the bottom line. Now, this guy was crippled from birth from polio. All right? Good preacher. And, but he was, he was, and he, he hated women. In fact, he was married at the time, and he got, he got divorced shortly thereafter. He treated his wife like a dog, didn't he, honey? A terrible, terrible. Order around, you know, just the reverse of my relationship with my wife. She orders me around, you know. I mean, just, no. And so he's up there preaching on crutches. Now, Mel Sabaka is my father in the Lord. And Mel Sabaka is about as rough and crude as they come. Right, Steve? Yeah, I mean, he, he'll tell you what he's thinking. He doesn't care. He is the master of the art of sarcasm. <laughs> but he has a way of making you like it. <clears throat> and this guy just offended 1,500 ladies in this church. I mean, and he didn't just say it. He yelled it at the top of his lungs. And then he ranted and raving about how they were hussies and all of this and all that because he's a legalist. And legalists think that your spirituality is based on how you dress. See? Most of you guys would be violation of the second law. That is, if you go to church, you have to wear a suit and tie. I preached one time at a youth conference down in southern Missouri, drove 160 miles to get there. And when I showed up, it was 120 degrees in this barn that was an aluminum barn with no heat, no air conditioning, had plenty of heat, no air conditioning, no nothing. And the pastor told me that I could not preach that night and had to drive back because I had a short sleeve shirt on. And short sleeve shirt exposed the arms. And in their church, that was showing flesh. I reasoned with it. I came all this way. I said, if you're worried about any woman lusting after these, you got no problem. <laughs> I said, you got no issue. That's legalism. I'm trying to get away from the story so you'll forget about it, but I don't know. So this guy, he's ranting on his lips. Mel Sabaka's sitting here. I'm sitting here. My wife's sitting here. Mel's mad. I can tell he's mad. Mel didn't like the guy anyhow, and the guy didn't like Mel. My wife leans over to me because she's shaken by this. And she, because this first, you know, this is all new. She leans over and she says, and now Mel's her spiritual daddy in the Lord. 
And so it's perfectly okay to ask him because he's the seed of wisdom here. Didn't ask me because she wanted it from the real old dog. Okay? She leans over across me and she says, Mel, is that really true? As loud as she could say it, Mel says, Nah, he's just mad because he ain't got no legs. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> that is an absolute true story. And I'll tell you what. We have laughed about that. I have laughed about that. Me and Mel have laughed about that for years and years and years. That was probably 25 years ago. <clears throat> But legalism is a system that puts a set of laws into effect. That it, your spirituality is based on, on, on what you, on the clothes that you wear and the place you go. If you're a legalist, movies are out. TV's out. I had situations where they had youth rallies where all the kids brought their radios and all their TV sets and they put them in a big pile and burned them and everybody cheered around in a circle that we've been killing the devil now. I would much rather just throw them behind the church. I'd pick them up on the way home, and you could buy them on eBay a little bit later on. See? <laughs> it was the legalists that came up with the idea of what we call backmasking. Now, I'm not saying bassmastic, true or false, but, you know, you get these, these acid uh, music things, you know, by Led Zeppelin and, and, and Kiss, and I don't know who they all are, you know, uh, <coughs> Willie Nelson, I guess, and all these groups, you know. <coughs> And the thing is, some legalists find out if you play them backwards, the music says, kill your mother, kill your mother, kill your mother, kill your mother. Well, you know what? I listened to one of them. It didn't, it sounded like, I don't remember. Kill your mother. You can make it sound, you know, kill your mother, kill your mother. Or you can make it sound, you know, go to the bank, go to the bank. Or you can make it sound, time to go to bed, time to go to bed. I mean, to me, it sounded like anything. But they, and they, they have record bashes. And I'm not saying that, that all of it's wrong, but they bring in their kids. They have big youth rods, bring in all their records. All their, maybe some of your records need to be trashed. I don't know. But they, they burn them all in there, throw them down there and burn them all up. <clears throat> you know what? I tried it one time, backmasking. I picked the wrong record. I got a country western song. That was my first thing. I played it backwards. The guy got his dog back. He got his truck back. He got his wife back. <laughs> he got his job back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You see, no shorts. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't dress modestly. Don't misunderstand me. We're right in the middle. I'm not someone over here. I think you, you, I think you ought to, you know what? There's people that I have been in churches where if somebody came to the church and he didn't have the right clothes on that they thought was a sober, they either set him in the back or they told him they couldn't come into church. Now, I don't know what to do with that. Let me tell you something. You ain't any holier what's going on in your mind and your heart right now. Uh, I, just, I just can't go there. I don't think you can legislate morals. When I preach, I don't preach about the clothes you wear. I preach at, the, I preach at your heart. I figure if your heart's right, whatever you got on your body will be just fine. When you dress, ladies in the morning and guys in the morning, when I dress, when we dress to please the Lord, then everything you got on is going to be just right. So I go after the heart. I go after the heart. But legalism is a system by which they try to put the Old Testament law back into your life and it's spirituality based on rule. Now, along with this comes the no divorce. If you're in a legalistic church and you have been divorced, you might as well go out and blow your brains out because you're done as far as they're concerned. You never can pastor. You can't be a deacon. You can't be a Sunday school teacher. And you know what? It really doesn't matter if you were divorced before you were saved or after you are saved. To them, it's all wrong. They teach this. That if you have been divorced and you have, been re you have gotten remarried, you are now living in open adultery. That's what they teach. 
And I talked to a guy one time, I, I, and, I, and he was struggling with it. And he came over to see me, and he says, I'm just having a real tough time. And I said, well, what's the matter? He says, well, he says, I, says, I got divorced, and I know I was wrong, and, I, and my wife was wrong. It's just one of those things. And he says, I'm really trying to put my life back together. And he says, he says, I don't know what they, they won't. They told me that as long as I have to stay single the rest of my life, as long as I stay single. She says, I'm 30 years old. I don't want to stay single. I want to, but they said, I have to stay single the rest of my life. And if I get married, then I'm going to be living in open adultery the rest of my life. And I'm going to, and, and I'll never be used in the church. I'll never be able to be a deacon. I'll never be able to be a pastor. I'll never be able to be in the ministry. I'll never be a Sunday school teacher. Never be this, never be that. And I stopped him at that point. And I said, okay. Let's see what's wrong with this system. This is real easy. Here's the way it works. Okay, you're divorced. If you get remarried, here's what you cannot do. You cannot be a pastor. You cannot be a deacon. You cannot teach Sunday school. You can't be in leadership. You, what do you want to be in? You can't be my assistant. What can we let you do in our church? Oh, I know. We'll let you tithe. See how stupid that is? You can't do anything, but we want something from you. That's the way it works. Okay. Here's the verse. Thou sayest to a man, thou shalt not commit adultery. Dost thou commit adultery? A number of years ago, I have a friend of mine who, who was a pastor. And uh, he got a divorce. Now, I understand, you know, issues with divorce and all of that. And, and here's my, you know, I don't have time to get into my stand on it today, but my stand is this. Look, everybody makes mistakes. If you're here this morning, you've been divorced and you're not remarried or you're divorced and you're planning on getting remarried or you're divorced and you are remarried, you know what? The bottom line is this. Blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Simple as that. You do what's right with God, you do it. I'm going to show you why that is in just a second. I'm going to show you why this thing, these, the Pharisees didn't die out. I'm going to show you what he's talking to Jesus about, but I've got to give you my illustration here. A friend of mine was a pastor. He got divorced. Really, his wife left him. His wife didn't want anything to do with the ministry anymore, and uh, she just up and left him. This guy stayed single for like 15 years. And, of course, he was a young man, and he met a lady, and he wanted to get married, so he went ahead and got married. The moment he got married, he was branded by the legalistic crowd, and now he had, he had no right to pastor because he was a divorced man who got remarried and he was living in open adultery. That was the teaching. Now, here's how it worked. A buddy of mine, by the name of Jim Lake, up in Mount, Mount Pelier, Vermont, good friend of mine, had him in to preach. And the word got around that this guy was coming to preach for him. So Jim got a phone call from, a, from, a, from, the, from the association of, of legalists up there in Mount Pelier, Vermont. And they all got together there, and they uh, come over to have a little church meeting, and they sat around there, and Jim was very cordial. And, they, and the, head, the head Pharisee said, Now, these are saved, born-again men. And the head guy said, uh, I hear you're having so-and-so to preach in your church. Jim said, Yeah, that's correct. Looking forward to it. He said, Since when, brother, do you allow adulterers to preach in your church pulpit? Jim looked at him and said, Now, you've got to understand Jim. Jim's very fast. You've got to be really quick to get ahead of Jim. The old boy gruffled down and he said, well, since when, brother, and this is the way, I love it. This is what they do. They put their head down, look down under their glasses, and he said, well, so when, brother, so when, they're talking like this, no, but when they want to say, so when, brother, when, let me ask, when, brother, well, let me ask, so when, brother, since you allow adulterers to preach in your pulpit. Jim says all the time. He said, in fact, you preach in my church many times, and you're an adulterer. So am I. 
the old boy said, well, I want you to know, when do you, when, well, I've never been divorced, and I didn't know you were divorced, and I've never been in a, I've never been in an adulterous relationship, and, and I didn't know you were. And Jim says, well, I haven't been, and I am not divorced. Been married for 20-some years. But the Bible says, he that walketh on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Your move, pal. You see, the old boy thought because he never got in the act, or he never was divorced, that that omitted adultery from his life. Come on, kids. Come on, young man. Come on, sweetheart. Let's get honest. You know what the bottom line is? You and I, if we allow it, we take our mind places we never permit taking our bodies. But the old Pharisee, see, that's Pharisee for you. That's what they do. He thought because he'd never been divorced that the fact that, uh, that adultery didn't apply to him. Let me tell you something. It is, when it comes to sin, it is never the act. It is always the heart that produces the act. Now, I'm not saying the act of adultery isn't bad. I'm not saying there isn't some terrible consequences to it. It can ruin your family, it can ruin your ministry, it can ruin your life, and all things of the above. But the bottom line, when David got into his mess with Bathsheba, when he got right in Psalm chapter 51, here's what he said. Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin doesn't start with the act. Any sin starts in your heart. But the old Pharisee thought that he was oblivious to that because he never committed the act or he never he got a divorce. What a sham. What a fallacy. One time the group of Pharisees, remember them, brought a woman to Jesus? And he brought him over there and he threw her down in front of him. And Jesus says, what's this, guys? He says, we caught this woman in adultery. In the very act. Kill her. Old Testament law says kill her. Jesus says, I agree, let's kill her. All right, let's kill her. Then you know what he said? He said, okay, boys, you do it. Oh, one thing. He that without sin, let him cast the first stone. He put them right in their place. Because you know what they were? He knew they were using the law. He knew that they were fair. He knew they were guilty of the exact same things. That's what the Jews are. The Jews go around putting everything on everybody. And they're guilty of them themselves. God's people do the same thing. We get ourselves so self-righteous. We get ourselves that, we, that we, we, we look at everybody else's problems. And what the book of Romans does, it brings you right back to the reality of where we live. Who am I today? Who are you today? This is like we saw last week, the Jews and God's people. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Their thoughts excusing and accusing each other. I'll excuse myself, but I'll, excuse, I'll accuse you. It's the way it works. It's the way it works. Then he says this, verse 22. Oh, it only gets worse. It would be fine at this point. We'd, we'd just, you know, uh, but no, no. Verse 22, he's got to add insult to injury. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? You bet we do. Israel did it. We do it. You know, you know how we got the name Christian? We got the name Christian because back in the early Roman Empire, in the early times after Christ died around the first century, the Romans had... Hundreds and hundreds of gods. They had a god for everything. But Christianity only had one god. And the Romans looked at Christianity as a poor man's religion. Because they thought the more gods you had, the bigger, better religion you was. See? 
I mean, you know, like bigger is better and the more toys you have, you know, and all that stuff. And they thought that a religion with many, many, many gods has to be much better than a religion with one god. And not only that, but the, the, these Christians or these believers said that their one true God was living inside them. And so then they ridiculed them and said, Oh, your God, we have big palaces to our gods. We have big buildings with beautiful columns and beautiful this and beautiful granite statues. There's where our gods are. Your God is living inside you. Well, your God is who? Christ? Why, Christ lives inside you? Why, you're just a, you're just a, you're just a little Christ. From that came the word Christian. It means little Christ. But the one true God is pretty low on our priority list today. The scribes and the Pharisees and the legalists, they won't, they'll get on you for loving a book and worshiping a book and the God of this book, but they'll worship their schools, they'll worship their education, and they'll worship... You know what? If you ever get to the place, and I hope this never happens to you, but if you ever get to the place that you go to try out for a church to be a pastor... They're not going to ask you what you know about the Bible. They're not going to ask you if you can lay all this stuff out or ask you what you're going to do. You know what they want to know? They want to know is where you went to school and how many degrees you got. Because to them, the more secular degrees you got and the more you got education, they think the closer that makes you to God. They're just like the Jews. They'll never ask you, what do you know about the Bible? They'll never ask you, what about this or what about that? Or what do you believe about this? They don't care. They just want to know where you've been and who you've hung out with. And if it lines up with where they're at, you got the job. That's simple. Because that's their God. People worship their homes. People worship their cars. People worship their money. Young men worship their girlfriends. Young girls worship their boyfriends. Some of you go through your whole day. You don't even talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a while back, a while back, this is probably been three or four months ago, I talked about the seven qualities of character that are God's. And I talked about how that if you really want to know where you're at with God, if you really want an honest face up, look in the mirror and be honest with yourself, really want to look into yourself and say to yourself, this is where I'm really at, you know what you do? You take those seven things and you lay them out and list them out and you get into those things and you explore every one of them in relationship of where you're at being told. Because you can't lie to the book. You can lie to me, you can lie to your wife, lie to your husband, lie to your friend, lie to your dog, lie to your cat. You cannot lie to that book because that book was reading you while you're reading it. I must have had eight or nine of you come to me. A whole bunch of you. How do you do this? Lay it out. I gave you all the perimeter. You know what? That's been two, three months ago. And I said to every one of them, let me know when you're done. Let's go through it. And I want to see what you come up with. Nobody's come back. Nobody's come back. Now, I understand why. I, I'm not mad at you, and I don't think anything less of you. I, you know what? I didn't do it at all. Because I know what I'd find out. I love my denial just like you do. But I understand why people don't come back. Once you get into that, you can't hide anymore. Oh, you may bruise through one or two of them, but you know what? There will always be one or two that just stick in you and you can't deal with it, don't want to deal with it, don't want to get around it, you want to talk about it, but you just don't want to blow through and put those things in your life and change what you got to change. It's the way we are. I'm not faulting you for it. I'm just saying, who are we today? Look in the mirror. We say we have no other gods, but we commit sacrilege all the time. We, we, we worry about what people think about us more than what God thinks about us. Your God today, my friend, is whatever motivates and controls you. A while back, 
This has been a number of years ago. I wanted to find out when I was dealing with a lot of drug addicts and a lot of alcoholics. So what I did was I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, not being an alcoholic. And I joined, I forget what the drug one is, not being one of that. And you, I went through the 12 steps, went every week. And really enjoyed it, learned a lot. But one of the things I had a problem with was as they sat around in a circle all the time and they would say, uh, my name is so-and-so and I'm a, I'm a recovering addict. My, I'm so-and-so, I'm a recovering an addict. And somebody, everybody would go around and say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an addict in recovery or I'm a recovering addict. When it came to me, before I could think, I, w I was worried about what to say because I didn't know what to say. And so it, it slipped out and I blew it. I said, hi, my name is Bob Alexander and I'm, a, I'm an addict that's not in recovery. And it all looked at me. And they said, well, what do you mean you're an addict not in recovery? What are you doing here? And I said, well, I've never taken drugs and I've never drunk alcohol. What are you doing here? Well, I wanted to find out because I do have an addiction and I thought maybe you could help my addiction. And they said, well, what is your addiction? And I said, well, I said, I don't mean, you know, I guess I maybe should explain before I come, but the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, that God's people are to be addicted to the ministry. My addiction is ministry. And so I'm not going to recover from that. But I thought by coming down here and learning what you guys talk about, how I may be able to help somebody else get out of this addiction and get the right addiction. I said, because, and then I took over the meeting. I said, you know what? The problem here is not that you got an addiction. The problem here is you got the wrong addiction. There's nothing wrong with being addicted. Nothing. And I think that I'm hearing from here, and I don't mean to take this over. He says, go ahead, brother. You're doing pretty well. I said, the, the thing I, I'm, I don't th like, you're saying that you ought, to, you ought to get out of the addiction. No, no, no. You don't need to get out of addiction. You just need to change addictions. You don't need to quit drinking spirits. You need to get hooked up to the spirit. You don't need to smoke that. You need to get the holy smoke. You need to, I'm thinking of all kinds of things coming through my head, you know, as I'm going through that thing. And I said, I said, the problem is, and a guy asked me a question in the back, and you could tell he'd been around the block two or three times, you know. And uh, he says to me, he says, well, well, brother, he says, I like what you're saying, but he says, how do I get how do, I, how do I change addiction? And I was, you know, caught me off guard. But it's one of those things where, you know, and I tell you this all the time. When God calls you up the bat and he puts you on the plate, you'll hit the ball. And I didn't know what I was going to say. And if I said, I said, and I said, and I'm thinking, and I said, this is the same way you get drugs. What does that mean, Lord? Help me out with this one, will you please? <clears throat> I said, how'd you get drugs? I said, I'll tell you how you got drugs. You found a man that was selling drugs and then you made that man your main line. And every time you needed a fix to get your addiction taken care of, you met that guy and you gave him some money and he gave you drugs. The same way you got addicted to drugs is the same way you get addicted to the ministry. Go find your church, hook up to a man who is selling God, who is giving you the Bible, who is laying out the things of God just like the pushers giving you the drugs. Make that guy your main line, get everything you can from him and, and hook up with him and get changed from that addiction to his addiction and you'll get addicted to the ministry instead of addicted to what you're to. And they all plotted. And they said, that's really the truth. That's the way it's supposed to be. And my friend, that is the way it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with being addicted. We're just addicted to the wrong things. Your God this morning is whatever controls you. Your God, your idol today is whatever pushes your buttons. Your God today is whatever you think about all day long. Some of you go all day long in your life, bless your heart, and don't even think about God. Some of you call your boyfriend or a girlfriend multiple times every day or you're doing little text messages and you never say one thing to God all day long. 
Oh, maybe you give him a half-hearted prayer before you eat your cold cheeseburger or you flop in the bed and you'll say goodnight to him. Probably not even there. But that's the problem, you see. Your God, my God this morning, is whatever controls us. Whatever controls you. And yes, we ought to be addicted to the ministry and the way you get addicted is start mainlining on this book in every aspect of your life because this is what needs to control you. I talked earlier about the art of sarcasm. And I was fooling around with you on the thing, but the bottom line is this. You have to be able to know when to use those things. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. Two different things. You've got to be able to know which one to do. You've got to be able to know and read the circumstances of every given situation because every one of them is different. You can't deal with the same people the same way even when they have the same problem because you've got different personalities. Everything in your life you're going to deal with as a child of God depends on the sensitivity you have to their circumstances, to their situation. What somebody else may look at and say, well, I don't like the way he did that, means nothing if God told you that's the way it has to do it. Sometimes you can pull them out of the car. Sometimes you can lift them up and put them on the stretcher. Sometimes you can carry them to the hospital. And sometimes you've got to get out the hacksaw and cut their leg off. The only way you know which the way and how to do it is by the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And the only way you get that leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life is to get addicted to it. Get to the place just like some of you can't go a day without a cigarette, go an hour without a cigarette, or go a day without this or a day without that. You can't go 15 minutes without thinking about it. You can't go 10 minutes in your life without thinking about a verse. Everybody you see walking down the street, everybody you see, every circumstance, a principle comes in that, that motivates you back toward that book. You're absolutely sold out to it, addicted to it, and you just can't get it out of your system. That's what it takes. Then lastly, he says this in verse 23. Thou that makest thy old boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? Yes, you do. Let me show you how. Verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Boy, that's the worst verse in the whole thing today. That is the most damaging verse that God ever put on my lap or your lap. You know what that verse says? I'll tell you what it says. I tell you that when you think life's all about you, when you think your circumstances that you're in is all about you and you're hurt and you're the victim and you're this and you're that, you know what? It is never about you. It is never about me. It's about the cause of Christ. When you and I don't do what's right, it's God that gets blasphemed. It's God who gets made fun of. It's God who your enemies look at and say, ah, didn't work for him, won't work for me. That's what the Jews did. The Gentiles looked at them and called them Christ killers. Well, the Catholic Church killed them all the way up the Vatican too. They bore the reproach because they had everything that God gave them. They were God's people. But because they disrespected God, because they violated God, because they dishonored God, the whole world looked at God and laughed. You know what Nathan said to David? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you better get this. David said to Nathan concerning Uriah the Hittite and what David did. 2 Samuel 12 verse 14. He says this. Old Nathan puts his bony finger right in his face. David says, oh, I've sinned greatly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about us. Yeah, David, it's all about you. Sure you sinned. Sure you did what was wrong. But David, you don't still get it. 
He says, Howbeit because by this deed thou hast given great occasions to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. It's not you or me that gets hurt. It's not about you. It's not about me. What about the cause of Christ? What about His cause? When we so flippantly do what we want to do, step outside the boundaries of that book, make up our own rules, make up and then laugh about it. Romans chapter 14, 7 says, No man liveth unto himself and no man dieth unto himself. There's always somebody watching your life. You may not know it. You may not even suspect it. I guarantee you, if they know you're a Christian or they even suspect you're a Christian, they're going to watch your life. And everything you and I do, everything that is about us, everything that we do when we put us up as the real victims, when we forget that it isn't about what happened to me, it isn't about what you're going through, what happened to you, it's about the cause of Jesus Christ maintained through it. It's about people looking at your circumstance and my circumstance, seeing us do what's right. And God, even though it may be a bad circumstance, even though it may be a tragic circumstance, God gets the honor and glory out of it instead of getting blasphemed through it. Fact is, my friend, it's not about you and me. It's about the cause of Christ getting hurt. We don't do what we're supposed to do, all of this. God's name gets blasphemed. We lose sight of that because it's, it's, it's me. Oh, I'm, I'm going through this. I'm this, I'm that. It's all about me. It's all about my issue. It's all about my problem. No, it's not. If you're a child of God, it's about His. People are watching your life. They're watching to see if you really live what you say you do. They're watching your life and my life all day long. Every situation I have to deal with gets criticized one way or the other. You've got to walk the line. You've got to make sure that it's right by the book, that you can go back to the book and say, this is what I did and this is why I did it. It wasn't for your situation. It wasn't for my situation. It was for the cause of Christ. Get the glory out of it. That's the Jews. The Jews have done more damage to themselves because of the arrogant, self-righteous, attitude they've taken toward God and His Son. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The body of Christ today has done more damage to the cause of Christ because we have fallen into the victim status. We want it all to be about us. Not one time in 35 years of ministry, not one time, not once, not one time, not once that anybody ever come in and tell me their story, their circumstance, their situation, whatever they're going with. And not one time that everybody say, I don't care about me. I don't care about that. How do we fix this? That God's name does not get blasphemed through it. Not one time. Not once. Not once. Not once. See, Romans is a tough book. We should have opted for 2 Corinthians. Because Romans puts it right where you and I live. Romans won't allow us to pretend we got it all together when we don't. Romans will not permit you and me. It will not permit you and me to flitter out here and pretend that we got it all together when we don't. Romans exposes the flaws in me. The worst part of it, this is not you. Worst part is me. You got to listen to it this morning. 
I have to listen to it again. But I had to put up with it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday because that's the days I work on it, fine-tuning it and getting all together. He kicked my rear end up six days from Sunday, five days. You just got it once. Man, I, I looked at some of those things in there, especially about the gods, the sacrilege, about causing a, bringing a, a blaspheme to Christ and the things that we do. And I thought to myself, boy, if what Romans does, what Romans does, it strips the veneer of who we pretend we really are. We can walk around and say an amen, glory to God, and pretending this, pretending that, and you know what? And know all about the Bible, but the truth of the matter is, Romans strips it right down to the bare metal, and you have to look and say, you know what? There's some things in my life that I'm not willing to deal with, and until you're willing to deal with them, God's going to get blasphemed through it. And I don't know what it is in your world. Maybe you got it all together. I don't know. I know I had to look at my life from one end to the other this week, and I know this. It isn't about me. It isn't about you. We like to think it is because all oh, we all like to play the victim. We like, that, we like that soft side that comes along with it because being a victim, many times we can absolve ourselves. Well, how can I be responsible if I'm the victim? Well, I've told you this before. In, in most situations I've dealt with in life, there's very few victims, truly victims. But I'll tell you what. You know who the real victim is? I'll tell you who it is. It's the cause of Christ. What we allow to go on in our lives and we just flippantly laugh at it or smirk at it or just think nothing about it when all around us, because no man liveth to himself and no man dies, somebody is watching your life and my life and judging the cause of Christ by it. Maybe we ought to vote again. Not too late to start 2 Corinthians. I might even vote along with you today. But I'm telling you, that's the Jews' problem. And though we don't like to think it's our problem, it is. Now I'm going to tell you something else. God's got some tremendous things for some of you. I look at some of you and watch what God's done with you, and I watch how God has just molded your life and brought you through what He's brought you through, and I see how God has brought you in. I see how God just continues to reach out there and bring people in from the most unbelievable circumstances that you never think, but it's, it's, it's got to be the hand of God. There's no natural human element that could do what sometimes God does. And I want to tell you something. God has something for every one of you in this room. Every one of you. Every one of you are unique. Every one of you is special. I don't care what level you're on, and I don't even care what problems you've got. I don't care what problems you've had. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what you've done. All I care about is where you're at at this point. But I'm saying, you can, you can be guaranteed. There isn't a lot of things in life you can be sure of, but you can be sure of one thing. God had you here to hear what needed to be said today. And God wants to do something with you. Now, the real issue has always been this. It's not, does God want to do something with you? The real question is, do you want to do something with God? But it has to be on His terms. I wish it could be on my terms. I wish it could be on your, everybody's terms. It can't be. It has to be on His terms. It's the only way it will work. But I'm telling you, this is what Romans does. This is why Romans, and I've said it when we started, it's the greatest single book in all of the Bible as far as to the Christian life. The constitution of Christianity, it gets right down to where you and I live and what you and I have to deal with, and boy, it will not let us look any other way but face to face into the Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed.